Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obamacare is illegal immigrants. Uh, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. the world leaders laughed at President Trump. Trade war. You know what it is? Our new slogan. America great. Thanks for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision. We've got plenty to get through this week, and that's in no small part because of the weekend submission of the Mueller report. We couldn't have asked for a better guest to talk us through that, as well as some of the 2020 Democrats dominating the headlines this week, and spend a bit of time discussing classic Hollywood cinema and its impact on presidential politics. Before I introduce our guest, let's hear some of the reaction to the Mueller report and Attorney General William Barr's summary of its conclusions. The Attorney General's comments make it clear that Congress must step in to get the truth and provide full transparency to the American people. We will ask the Attorney General to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. We will demand the release of the full report. That report needs to be made public. Yes. The American people have a right and they need to know. We need to see the Mueller report, not the Barr report. After a long investigation after so many people have been so badly hurt after not looking at the other side it was just announced there was no collusion with russia the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard there was no collusion with russia it was a complete and total exoneration Stephen Loosley was an Australian Labor senator during the Hawke and Keating governments, where he chaired both the Joint Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade and the Senate Regulations Committee. He's also a former ALP national president. He's currently a non-resident senior fellow at the United States Studies Centre and a columnist for the Australian newspaper. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Drew. Glad to be with you. I realise we've only had a few hours here in Australia to digest uh, some of the summary of Robert Mueller's report from the US Attorney General. Um, What's your initial reaction to the release of some of these findings? It will change the dynamic in American politics. Uh, The waiting on Mueller scenario is now... uh, uh, disappeared. The Attorney General has uh, made it uh, clear the uh, special counsel has determined no collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians, the Putin administration for 2016. And he's gone a little further. Uh, The AG has said uh, insufficient evidence for a charge of obstruction of justice. So essentially, what Attorney General Barr has done has uh, drawn a line across the page. Now, uh, this means the Democrats can still pursue matters in the different uh, uh, House inquiries, particularly Adam Schiff and the House Intelligence Committee. They'll be focused on obstruction of of justice and what uh, Mueller may or may not have missed. But the impeachment uh, caravan probably has lost a couple of wheels here, which is healthy in American politics in this sense. It really means that the parties and the candidates We'll have to focus more on policy for 2020 and alternative uh, political profiles rather than it simply be an anti-Trump 
uh, crusade with impeachment as its end. Okay, so let's talk about Democrats. So you wrote a column for the Australian newspaper recently about uh, the considerable length of time it's been since the Democrats came close to dominating politics in a state like Texas. Um, You suggested that might change if Beto O'Rourke ran for the Democratic nomination. Now, he's since declared his candidacy. Do you think we might have another Lyndon Johnson on our hands here? Uh, There will never, ever be another (laughs) Lyndon Johnson. (laughs) Yes, fair enough. Extraordinary figure, uh, a figure of uh, of legend as uh, as senator, majority leader, and as uh, and as president. Quite remarkable as Robert Caro has spent uh, the last couple of decades documenting in his, uh, I think it's now full volume biography, mm-hmm. and we're awaiting the the final volume. Better Why Rourke is uh, an interesting uh, character, and that's why he caught my attention. Uh, friends of mine in Texas, Democrats. Talk about him being the best retail politician since Jack Kennedy in terms of the way he relates to people uh, out on the stump. And, of course, when he ran against uh, Ted Cruz, the incumbent Republican senator, he campaigned in a a pickup truck, a a dusty pickup truck in every county in Texas. That's a massive effort. And um, it uh, it was his appeal to grassroots voters and and grassroots supporters. It meant he raised some $80 million uh, without any political action committee money. And he he fell short against uh, Cruz. There's there's no question about that. But he was so successful in terms of building momentum that a lot of Democrats were elected in different parts of Texas, particularly around Houston and, uh, and Dallas. And it's pointed out to me that if you, if you look at the uh, undeniable uh, electoral college framework. In 2020, the probability is the Democrats carry uh, New York State in the Northeast, plus Illinois, and in all likelihood, California and the West Coast. So there's a solid basis yep. of support. Where Hillary Clinton's campaign stumbled very badly, of course, was in the Midwest and the Upper Midwest, yep. which was uh, surprising for a lot of people, myself included. Now, if O'Rourke did better in Texas in a presidential poll, and he would because the turnout would be higher amongst traditional core constituencies for the Democratic Party. We're thinking of young people, especially students, uh, uh, Latinos, and uh, and African-Americans. They tend to turn out in, in greater numbers. Then it's possible carrying Texas delivers the presidency uh, uh, at the White House right. to the Democratic Party. Now, they haven't carried Texas. Democrats have not carried Texas uh, in a long, long time. Bill Clinton went close in uh, 92 but did not uh, get there. So that the Texas Democratic Party, which produced Lyndon Johnson uh, and the great speaker Sam Rayburn and, and others, has really been in the shade for some time. Now, O'Rourke may shift that uh, uh, reality. He's certainly going to be worth watching in the primaries coming yeah. up. Uh, uh, primaries out in Iowa and uh, up in New Hampshire and in South Carolina will suit him. If he's a retail politician, the way my friends describe him, those uh, are times and those electorates will suit him. Uh, one name that has suddenly been thrown into the mix uh, of real contenders is uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, from Indiana, or Mayor, Mayor Pete, as he's called. Um, he's had some impressive political donation numbers himself um, following a fine performance in a, a CNN town hall. Any thoughts on why he's been able to cut through at this stage? Because he's so personable. I've actually had the pleasure of meeting him. I oh, met really? him at the Australian-American... A leadership dialogue in July last year. Sat with him and talked with him. Okay, uh, he's uh, he, he's a very warm and obviously genuine person, and he's got a concern 
for his constituents of South Bend, Indiana and, uh, and beyond. He's got a natural appeal. And uh, it's been a while since a, a small town mayor figured on the uh, the national stage. Yeah. But uh, he is the type of candidate who communicates very effectively, who's obviously committed to trying to better his fellow citizens' uh, circumstances and, uh, again, is uh, is not beholden to any special interests. And I think that's the appeal that we're going to find. It's going to be very interesting when Vice President Biden declares his hand and uh, assuming he runs, uh, what the reaction will be when the democratic establishment falls in, in large measure, behind the uh, the former vice president. Yep. It's just going to be an interesting internal uh, contest. The United States has a, a new ambassador to Australia who touched down earlier this month. Uh, you mentioned in some of your commentary about Arthur Culverhouse's arrival that uh, the ambassadorial role uh, was more important than ever during the Trump presidency. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Because in uh, Washington, D.C., and I, I must say in Washington, D.C., earlier this year, I met Ambassador Culverhouse. He's a very genial figure. He's widely uh, liked and widely well-respected, which yep. is why he was confirmed unanimously by the United States uh, Senate. So we're fortunate, having missed out on Harry Harris being sent off to Seoul, to have someone who, of his stature as uh, ambassador here. What, what I was referring to uh, is simply this. There are different dimensions in American foreign policy that are evident in Washington, D.C. at the moment. There's the presidential tweet, the off-the-cuff remark, which is aimed overwhelmingly at President Trump's base constituency. So bang, there's a tweet. Then the vice president normally comes out and uh, makes a speech defining American policy in far more coherent terms. So that's the administration. You have to watch uh, both. Beyond in terms of the Pentagon, state and the other uh, uh, great uh, uh, agencies, there is a different dimension there too, which we see in the person uh, best probably uh, uh, Secretary Pompeo. Right. Then there's the Congress. And we see that in Venezuela uh, at, at the moment, for example, the American policy on Venezuela with Senator Marco Rubio from Florida having taken a leading uh, a role. And um, while there's no replacement for Senator John McCain yeah. in, in terms of gravitas, Senator Lindsey Graham and others do make their presence felt. So you have these different dimensions. Now, for Australia, we're reasonably well-placed pretty much across the board and beyond with the American Electorate, but it's necessary for an ambassador who represents the president, of course, not the uh, uh, the Congress or the uh, uh, the bureaucracy, but the president. It's necessary for the ambassador in Canberra to be able to do this. And I go back to Prime Minister Menzies' conversation, original conversation with President Lyndon Johnson, yep. who sent Ed Clark uh, to uh, Australia, his Texas convict, on to Australia. Now, a lot of Australians dismissed Ed Clark as being a a yokel, a, a good-natured, uh, 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 humorous yokel. He was not. He had been LBJ's campaign fundraiser for a long time mm -hmm. and there were a few people closer to Lyndon Johnson. So what Prime Minister Menzies said to the president and from what we gathered, the president's approval, there was only one qualification for the American ambassador to Australia and that was to be able to pick up the phone and talk to, directly to the president of the United States. Yep. And over the years, we've seen ambassadors who could do that. I mean, Mel Semler, for example, with George H.W. Bush, Jeff Bleich, with Barack Obama, and there are others, but they're good examples of it. Uh, and I think in Ambassador Culverhouse, we probably have a person of that uh, capacity. 
Uh, you mentioned Senator John McCain um, uh, just before. Um, uh, he have, has, for some reason, drawn the ire of President Trump in the past fortnight, um, despite it being several months, of course, since his death. Um, I'll get some thoughts from you in a minute, Stephen, but let's first hear what he's had to say. Trump has persisted despite blowback from Republicans on Capitol Hill, outrage from McCain's family. The president just won't let this go. Hammered the late senator and war hero in front of a pro-military crowd in Ohio. McCain didn't get the job done for our great vets and the VA, and they knew it. The crowd listened in silence as Trump told them he never got a thank you for authorizing the use of an Air Force jet to transfer McCain's casket for his memorial service. I gave him the kind of funeral that he wanted, which as president, I had to approve. I don't care about this. I didn't get thank you. That's okay. We sent him on the way, but I wasn't a fan of John McCain. Not my kind of guy. Senator John McCain is dead. Why are you doing this? So it's not a good portion of my time. It's a very small portion, but if you realize uh, about uh, three days ago it came out that his main person gave to the FBI the fake news dossier. It was a fake, it was a fraud, it was paid for by Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. They gave it to John McCain who gave it to the FBI for very evil purposes. Uh, that's not good. And the other thing, he voted against repeal and replace. Now he's been campaigning for years for repeal and replace. Uh, I'm not a fan. Stephen, do you have any theories as to why such a prominent and greatly admired Republican figure continues to be a subject of such an obsession by the president? Precisely because of what you just said, right. Drew, precisely for that reason. Uh, there can only be one great Republican in the uh, uh, American political uh, universe at the moment in the presidential mind, and that's Donald Trump. Okay. And uh, he resented the fact that uh, Senator McCain had a, a peripheral role in the Steele report ending up with the the FBI. This was, of course, the uh, dossier yes. that uh, documented uh, alleged links to the Russians prior to uh, uh, 2016. So what Donald Trump is doing is trying to demolish McCain's reputation and thereby enhance his own. Right. And that's what it's about. Uh, Senator McCain was considered a, a great friend of Australia and often used his chairmanship of the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee to help nurture that relationship. Uh, are you concerned about the lack of advocates of the US-Australia relationship in Congress after his departure and uh, that of many other key committee personnel following the 2018 midterm? No, not unduly. For this reason, uh, that um, when there was uh, something of a row over the telephone conversation between Prime Minister Turnbull and President uh, Trump over a deal struck on uh, asylum seekers with the previous Obama administration, there are a lot of people in the Congress rallied around Australia and uh, people who are good friends of Australia like Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee. That constituency is still there. Right. Now, it may not have the gravitas of, uh, of John McCain, but there are a number of very influential congressmen and senators uh, who are uh, very good friends of Australia. And, of course, the Congressional Caucus that uh, uh, is friends with Australia uh, demonstrates that too, as does Ambassador Hockey's uh, mateship campaign. Yeah. Uh, I think that's been uh, uh, very useful. So I think we're reasonably well placed with the Congress. No one's going to replace John McCain. Yeah. He's like Lyndon Johnson. I mean, this is a figure of, of legend. And uh, we're not going to see his uh, alike again. But there'll be other men and women who, uh, who step up in, uh, in both houses. I think we're reasonably well placed. 
Uh, you yourself uh, served for many years in two Labor federal governments. Uh, if the ALP are successful in the federal election come May, do you believe we'd see a drastic departure from the kind of interaction Australia has had with the US administration until this point? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, the relationship overwhelmingly is uh, is bipartisan. And everything that Senator Wong in the foreign affairs arena and uh, and Richard Miles in the defence area have had to say uh, underlines that. I think we will uh, work the relationship hard in those different constituencies. I think we'll be closer to the uh, Americans in the South Pacific than we've been. There are a number of projects uh, underway. Uh, and I think in terms of... Uh, the American relationship provided the US and China can work out the trade dispute, we can uh, focus on what's really important and uh, that's been important to both countries uh, really since Harry Truman. Uh, one of your signature areas of expertise, and uh, some people may not know this, but it, it's classic Hollywood cinema. Um, what about these films and that era is a cause of such fascination for you? Because it's uh, uh, instrumental in uh, showing how people see themselves. Uh, for example, let, let's take a Chinese example. Yep. I'm thinking of Wolf Warrior 2. Yes. Uh, a uh, a, a marvellous uh, <clears throat> Rambo with Chinese characteristics, <laughs> uh, but it's how China sees itself. It's, it's the highest grossing film in the history of the Chinese cinema, nearly a billion American dollars from, uh, from memory. Uh, a former Chinese special forces officer who's disgraced, living in exile in Africa, becomes embroiled in a civil war in which the villains are Americans and Europeans, mercenaries. Uh, the US consulate is closed. The US Navy has departed. Yep. But the Chinese Navy's off the, off the coast. Uh, however, it will not intervene. The Chinese military will not intervene without a UN Security Council mandate. And really, that's how China sees itself. Uh, and of course, there's a sensitivity there about Africa and the Middle East because during the Arab Spring, China was obliged to ask Western navies to evacuate their nationals. Uh, they took a, a deliberate decision uh, in Beijing thereafter that they'd have the capacity to evacuate their nationals from uh, most parts of the world in the uh, in the future. Hence, the, um, the film illustrates right. uh, that. So I think it's certainly true of... Uh, of American movies of the classic period. It's like, like American presidential libraries, Joe. I mean, if you go out to the Truman Library at Independence, Missouri, that's yep. the United States in 1950. It's uh, it's quite remarkable uh, uh, to the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt uh, Memorial and, uh, and Home, uh, Dutchess County, New York, mm -hmm. the United States uh, during the Second World War, and, uh, and so it, it runs. And some of them, I'm thinking of the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, has actually captured the personality of the president. Right. There's a lot of good humour uh, in it. And it's the same with film. Um, in May, you're hosting a screening with the United States Study Centre of the uh, 1962 version of The Manchurian Candidate. Um, in that adaptation, uh, the villain attempting to brainwash Raymond Shaw and influence American presidential politics was the communist governments of China and the Soviet Union. Uh, in the 2004 version, it was updated to big corporations trying to get a sleeper agent in the White House. Um, I was wondering if the film was remade uh, today in 2019, who do you think might be the villain now? I suspect it would probably be uh, the earlier version because uh, the film is based on uh, the Korean War experiences of American uh, POWs and other allied POWs suffered the same way at the hands of the North Koreans and some, of course, disappeared into the Soviet Union, never to be seen again. So I suspect 
that uh, the filmmakers would focus on uh, on North Korea, perhaps with some assistance from the Russians, perhaps from the mm-hmm. Chinese. Yep. That's a, that, that is a quite remarkable film. The performances of, of the main players, including Frank Sinatra, are absolutely stand out. And uh, the film was taken out of circulation after the Kennedy assassination. Oh, really? Because of its uh, because of its uh, finale, but uh, Angela Lansbury, Lawrence Harvey, Sinatra, and others. I mean, it's 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 an extraordinary uh, film. I don't think the the later version works as well. Right. Uh, so if you ask me, what would the updated movie look like? I think it'd be a lot closer to the earlier rather than the later version. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's Hollywood's role in US politics today, do you think? Are they a player at all or is that that's kind of influence being I mean, acquiesced, I guess, to mediums like the news media? I, I think Hollywood has a, a powerful role and sometimes that can be very uh, positive. For example, uh, at the uh, study centre a couple of months back, we uh, screened uh, All the President's Men. Yes. Which is a, a film that has aged remarkably well. Uh, the performances are, are, are really top draw. I'm thinking... Jason Robards as, as Ben Bradley and Robert uh, Redford and, and Dustin Hoffman as, as Woodward and Bernstein. But the challenges for American media, indeed for media generally, are even greater now than they were during the Nixon uh, years. And it's how people respond to those pressures and how they actually endeavour to uh, build a narrative that's based on truth, on the facts of what actually uh, happened. You take a movie like Vice... Uh, uh, for example, which is something of a a, a comedy and a biopic of uh, of Dick Cheney, there are definitely lessons in uh, in that either or, uh, either way from uh, from Cheney's earliest time learning how hard life is mm-hmm. out in Casper, uh, Wyoming, to the final moments of the film where he speaks directly uh, to the audience. The same with a movie like The Front Runner, yep. about Gary Hart's doomed. Uh, campaign. So Hollywood is, is is very valuable in terms of charting the course of American politics, the mix with business, with voters, with media and so on, the issues that uh, that come and go. And the great movies survive and continue to influence events. I mean, from memory, All the President's Men was made in 1976 and here it is 40-odd years later yeah. and it, it still stands analysis. I wondered finally if I, could, if I could ask you to pick any film that would perfectly, I guess, sort of epitomise the current state of US politics or the Trump era um, or the state of US political discourse at the moment. What, what would that be? Unquestionably, in my mind, uh, Drew, it would be Robert Rosson's 1949 film, All the King's Men. Right. It's, it's based on Robert Penn Warren's novel, a, a great novel, about uh, Governor Willie Stark, Governor of Louisiana, who is unquestionably modelled on uh, Governor Huey Long, and uh, its raw-edged politics, the uh, importance of uh, of the base, the importance of family, the uh, importance of taking on your opponents, whether they be in your own party or uh, or beyond, in order to uh, to win and not blinking. Uh, Broderick Crawford gives a, an extraordinary performance. There's a later version of the film, which I don't think will age as well as uh, as this one. Right. But in in terms of uh, the the roughhouse of politics and the mobilisation of the base in particular, yep. I think it's illustrative of American uh, politics then and now. 
Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your insights. An absolute pleasure, Andrew. Thanks this week to Kevin McLeod, the Marion Circle Drum Brigade, Ketza and the Bubba Mara Brass Band for their musical contributions, and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance. 